Hi everybody, it's good to be with you this morning and to be able to share God's word with you in this way. Having just begun our series through the book of First Peter, I was a little hesitant and conflicted and uncertain as to whether or not to interrupt it already, but I did think it might be important for us to consider the significance of Ascension Day, which we celebrated on Thursday, or perhaps didn't celebrate, as the case may be. Ascension Day is one of those unusual days in the Christian calendar because we know it's important, but we're just not quite sure why it's important. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism to you, a series of questions and answers that children used to memorize as part of discipleship. This week, I was reading on a little bit in the Catechism, and I saw that 400 years ago, boys and girls used to learn off by heart the significance of Ascension Day. Let me read it to you. The 49th question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? And the answer is, first, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. Impressive. And I'd like to expand on that a little bit and explain it a little more. And I'd like to do so from the account of that very first Ascension Day, which Luke gives us in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. What is the significance of Ascension Day? 
Well, I think there are a number of things in this passage and in the rest of the New Testament which are particularly significant for us in the situation in which we find ourselves this morning, in the midst of a global pandemic. First, I think we should see Jesus' ascension as a throne room scene, which is worth celebrating. Luke writes and he says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That was the view from earth, the view from below, as it were. But in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us the view from beyond. Remember, heaven is not so much above or up as it is beyond. And this is how Paul describes it. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Often in adventure movies, you have a scene where the hero returns from battle and enters into the king's court. And he comes in at the back of the throne room, often dirty and bloody from battle. And what happens? Everyone in the throne room stands to their feet, often in complete silence. And they watch as the knight walks slowly down the main aisle towards the king who is stood at the head of the throne room. And then the king will say something to the knight, or he will embrace him, and then all those in the throne room will cheer, and then the knight will be seated next to the king. Or think of Star Wars, A New Hope, where instead of a knight you have two space pilots and a Wookiee walking down the aisle towards Princess Leia. It's a familiar image to us from the movies, but I think that those movie scenes resonate within our hearts precisely because of the fact that 2,000 years ago that happened, not on earth, but in heaven. And one day that will happen to those of us who know God and are known by him. Notice a couple of things about this heavenly throne room scene. Firstly, as the Heidelberg Confession reminds us, this is the first time that flesh and blood entered into heaven. Jesus ascended bodily into heaven with his resurrection body. Now, Jesus' body after resurrection seems to have been slightly different to his body before resurrection. There was continuity and discontinuity. At times his disciples recognized him, and at other times they didn't recognize him. He could appear and disappear at will. He could enter into rooms through locked doors. His body was the same, but also different. But it was nevertheless a body. Remember Jesus saying to the disciples, Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Jesus had a resurrected body, and it was this body that entered into heaven. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest, and she puts it this way in one of her books. She says, What Jesus went to heaven to do was to finish what he had begun with us. It was not enough that through him God was born into the body of the world, 
That was just his Christmas gift to us. His ascension gift was that through him, the body of the world was born back to God. By presenting his own ruined, risen body to be seated at the right hand of God, Jesus imported flesh and blood into those holy precincts for the first time. He paved the way for us so that when we arrive there later, everyone will not be quite so shocked by us. He restored the goodness of creation and ours in particular. By ascending bodily into heaven, he showed us that flesh and blood are good, not bad, that they are good enough for Jesus, good enough for heaven, good enough for God. By putting them on and keeping them on, Jesus has not only brought God to us, he has also brought us to God. That is something worth celebrating. Secondly, in this throne room scene, remember that the resurrected and ascended body of Jesus had scars on it. He bore the scars of his mission on earth. Remember, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Jesus could have chosen any kind of resurrected body he wanted, and yet he specifically chose to keep the scars, as we sometimes sing in that chorus, the marks that speak of sacrifice. That reminds me this morning that in this awful time in which we find ourselves, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tested and tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus understands our fear and anguish about the future. Remember his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane as he anticipated what was going to happen to him the next afternoon. In John's vision in the book of Revelation, John sees a lamb standing before the throne, but it's a lamb that looks as if it has been slain. There is an eternal reminder before the throne of God of Jesus' death on the cross for us, for our sin, and of Jesus' humanity, that he understands our human frailty and weakness. Thirdly, this throne room scene is a foretaste of a final heavenly event. As Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, Jesus has gone to heaven before us so that, as she puts it, when we arrive there later, everyone will not be quite so shocked by us. The New Testament writers have a special term for this. They refer to Jesus as the firstfruits. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes and he says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in their own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now, what in the world are, or is, firstfruits? When I was growing up in Johannesburg as a child, around October, we would have a harvest festival at our church. We set up a big stage and everyone would bring fresh produce. I remember there always used to be a huge pumpkin on the stage. Quite where everyone got their fresh produce from, I don't know, because this was the middle of Johannesburg and none of us were farmers. 
But the whole idea was to give thanks to God for his goodness in the harvest, or, more likely for us who weren't farmers, for his goodness in the past financial year. In ancient Israel, a harvest festival was slightly different. What they would do is at the very beginning of the harvest, they would present the very first things that came from the land as a thanksgiving, but also as a pledge and a promise of what was to come. And that's the picture here. The fact that Jesus has ascended to God is a promise and a guarantee that we too will one day be presented by him to God. Father, I want you to meet my friend John. Father, here is my beloved daughter, Haley. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. There is one final detail of this throne room scene that I think is important for us. Look at what Luke says. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. This idea that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God is repeated again and again in the New Testament. If you were to ask any of the New Testament writers, where is Jesus right now? They would all give the same answer. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. After Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We read Ephesians chapter 1 a moment ago where Paul writes, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He writes to the Colossians and says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why should there be this great emphasis on Jesus being seated at the right hand of God? Well, the fact that Jesus is seated is a visual picture of the fact that his work is complete. I remember learning something of this as a child. As a child, I knew that I could misbehave around my dad as much as I wanted, as long as he remained seated. I could be irritating and misbehaved. I could be naughty and objectionable. He might warn me. He might tell me to stop it. He might even threaten me with a smack. But I knew that I was fine. I could do as I wanted until he got up out of his chair. When he was standing, he meant business. As long as he was seated... I was safe. The fact that Jesus is seated is a visual picture of the fact that his work is complete. One of the things that has always interested me are people's final words. I've collected some of these over the years. Some of you have probably heard them. The deaf composer Ludwig van Beethoven said, I shall hear in heaven. The novelist Emily Jane Bronte said, if you will send for a doctor, I will see him now. Lady Astor, the parliamentarian who gave Winston Churchill such a hard time, as she was lying on her deathbed, she saw all her family gathered around her, and so she asked, Am I dying, or is it my birthday? H.G. Wells, the famous science fiction writer, said, Go away, I'm all right. 
Contrast those to the final words of Jesus in John chapter 19. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally, when Jesus ascended into heaven and stood before his Father, he could have said, Mission accomplished. There is nothing more that can be done to save humanity. By his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus has accomplished salvation for all who believe. There is nothing else that anyone can do to save people from their sins. Jesus has done it all. That's very important when people come and say, well, Jesus is okay, but you also need to read our literature. Jesus' death on the cross was important, but you also need this ritual. Jesus' teaching was great, but you also need to do this. Let me repeat, by his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has accomplished everything that's necessary for our salvation. We cannot add anything to his finished work for us. Jesus has done it all. Just to say that while Jesus' work of salvation is complete, he is still working for us at the right hand of the Father. Romans chapter 8 speaks about Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Right now, as we find ourselves in this scary pandemic, not knowing what this week will bring, we have the assurance that in this moment, the Lord Jesus is praying for us. So on Ascension Day, we celebrate a throne room scene. The next couple of points are a bit shorter. What are some of the other significances of Ascension Day? Well, the second significance is that Jesus says he's gone to prepare a place for us. John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Somebody sent me a message on Thursday which read, Ascension Day. Jesus has gone to work from home. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and it must be quite a place because so far construction has taken 2,000 years. I believe one of the biggest lies the devil has sold the world and also sold the church to some extent is that heaven is boring. We tend to think that heaven is going to consist of one long church service that will go on for eternity. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I once read about a Bible college professor who would sometimes ask his students, How many of you want to go to heaven? And every hand would immediately go up. And then he would ask, How many of you would like to go tomorrow morning? He said that considerably fewer hands would go up at that point. But then he would say to the class, Do you wish you would wake up tomorrow morning to discover that the person you loved most passionately loved you even more? Wake up hearing music you've always loved, but have never heard with such infinite joy before. 
Rise to the new day as if you were just discovering the Pacific Ocean. Wake up without feeling guilty about anything at all. See to the very core of yourself and like everything you see. Wake up a breathing God as if he were air, loving to love him and loving everybody else in the bargain. And again, all hands would go up and he would say, well, actually, then I do think that you want to go to heaven tomorrow. I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I do know that heaven will be just that, heaven, that everything will be restored, that everything bad will come undone. Jesus has gone there to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him forever. A third significance of Jesus' ascension is that when he left, he also gave us the Holy Spirit. Luke records this for us in this passage in verses 4 and 5. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit is one of the most important parts of Jesus' going away. In fact, Jesus could say to his disciples, It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he could only minister to one person at a time. He could only give his full attention to one person at a time. When he was speaking to Peter, he couldn't at the same time be interacting with Andrew. But now that the Holy Spirit has come, each one of us has complete and direct access to Jesus all of the time. While Jesus was on earth, he could only minister to people outwardly through teaching and preaching, but the Holy Spirit of God works within our hearts. This explains something that at first seems slightly odd in Luke's Gospel. In Luke's record of the Ascension, he ends by saying, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. As a child, and even a bit later on as an adult, I had the great privilege of having my grandparents come and visit us from England. And whenever we had to drop them off at the airport, I can assure you that we never returned home with great joy. But the disciples did, because Jesus had not really left them. As St. Augustine put it back in the third century, You ascended from before our eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. A fourth aspect of the ascension is that the same Jesus who has gone from us promises us, I'll be back. There are some moments in the Bible that I wish I could have been around for, and I think that the ascension is one of those, not necessarily to see Jesus disappear, but rather to see the disciples' reaction. You have these big, burly fishermen all staring up into the sky, and then the angels come and say to them, Why are you looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. In that passage that we looked at earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus continues, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The four things that we have looked at so far speak about what God has done for us through the ascension of his Son. 
But what is our response this morning? What part do we have to play? Well, our part, I believe, is to be ready and working. Firstly, we need to be ready for his return. Whenever the New Testament writers speak about Jesus' second coming, they never spend time speculating on when it will be. They always urge their readers to be ready. In fact, when Jesus himself spoke about his second coming, that was his main emphasis, not on when it would happen, but on the need for us to be ready. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. While he was on one of his expeditions to the Antarctic, Sir Ernest Shackleton left some of his men on Elephant Island with the intent of returning for them and carrying them back to England. But he was delayed. By the time he could go back for them, the sea had frozen over and he had no access to the island. Three times he tried to reach them but was prevented by the ice. Finally, on his fourth try, he broke through and found a narrow channel. Much to his surprise, when he arrived, he found the crewmen waiting for him, supplies packed, ready to board. They were soon on their way back to England. He asked them how they knew he was coming. They told him they didn't know when he would return, but they were sure he would. So every morning the leader rolled up his bag, packed his gear, and told the crew to do the same, saying, Get your things ready, boys. The bus may come today. We need to be ready for the return of Jesus. And one of the things that this coronavirus has done, I believe, is given us a new sense of urgency and expectancy. I don't know if this is the beginning of the end, whether we will live to see Jesus coming on the clouds, but we should always be ready and prepared for it. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, We eagerly await a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter writes in the book of Second Peter, You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Which brings us to the second implication of Ascension Day for our lives. Not only are we to be ready, but we're to be working. Did you notice how our reading from the book of Acts began? It's very interesting to see how Luke begins the book of Acts. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. But hold on a minute, we've just spoken about the fact that Jesus' work is finished. And anyway, the book of Acts is all about the church. It's not about Jesus at all. Or is it? Luke hasn't made a mistake. He's saying something very important. He's saying that Jesus is still at work right now through his church, through us, through you, through me. Remember the words we read from Ephesians a few moments ago. Paul said, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
That's an astounding and a sobering statement. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, there's a second incarnation. Jesus comes and takes up residence in you and in me and in us together. The church is his body. By ascending into heaven and by leaving his Holy Spirit with us, Jesus has in effect turned over the mission to us. We are the body of Christ. As the church we represent Jesus. We're his hands, his feet, his voice. This morning we're wonderfully invited to join God in accomplishing his mission. We're invited to keep on writing the story about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What will our story be? It might be something small like crossing the road to take a cake to a neighbour, phoning somebody who's lonely, sending a WhatsApp message, writing an email. God has placed us this morning in families, in neighbourhoods, in retirement villages, in schools, in offices, to be his witnesses to those who are around us. Sandy Miller is an Anglican pastor who's in his 80s now, and he tells how he once went to a beautiful old country house in France, and one of the things that really impressed him was the beautiful gardens. They were absolutely magnificent and immaculately kept. And Sandy saw the gardener working, and he complimented the man on his beautiful work. And then he said to the man, how long have you been working here? And the man replied, 44 years. And Sandy said, does the owner of the villa come here often? And the gardener replied, no, in fact, I've never seen him. And Sandy said, you mean you've worked here for 44 years and you've never met the owner? And the man replied, that's right. And Sandy said to him, well, with these gardens looking so beautiful, you must be expecting him to come tomorrow. And the gardener replied, No, today, sir, I'm expecting that he might come today. Jesus has ascended into heaven. His work for us is finished. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And he has left us his Holy Spirit until he returns. Until that time, you and I can be expectant and ready, and waiting, and working. Amen.